This is the Education Gadfly Show. Actually, David co-starred in that one as well. It's true. I was also drunk. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, John Schilling. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Great to be with you. It is great to have you with us. For those who don't know, John is president of the American Federation for Children, the leading advocate for school choice in America. So great to have you on the show. We think back on the show. We, we can't quite remember. We've been doing the show for so freaking long, we can't even remember who's been on the show before. But you know who is on the show every week is my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, I'm so glad you noticed that, Mike. Yeah, David's here too. Loving it's good it. to be here. All right. Hey, you know, Mike, I seem to recall some of these shows involved you and Hess with libations. Am I remembering this correctly? (laughs) Well, yes. uh, Yes. Hess, uh, Rick Hess and I were the original co-hosts way back when. (laughs) I don't think we enjoyed libations on the podcast. You are remembering (laughs) our drunk history episode where we did a drunk history (laughs) policy. Actually, David co-starred in that one as well. It's true. I was also drunk. That was a lot of fun. That was one of our April Fool's Day videos. You know, people very disappointed now, two years in a row, that we have skipped our April Fool's Day education glad fly. It just doesn't seem right during the pandemic, but uh, hey, we'll be back next year. All right, John. Hey, it's great having you on the show. We invited you here because uh, we noticed, as have many people, that boy, it suddenly seems like uh, school choice advocates are having a pretty darn good legislative session, at least so far. A few years ago, the Wall Street Journal famously called it the year of school choice. I think we maybe have another one on our hands. And so I guess we want you to give you a chance to, to give us an update uh, on how those legislative sessions are going. And we can talk a little bit about why we might be seeing so many victories. So let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right, John, so start by painting a picture for us. Where are things going well? Maybe where are things going not so well, if that's the case, when it comes to expanding private school choice? Well, Mike uh, and David, things are going well all over the country. When you get into the, the year after a big election, that is typically a year when you do see a lot of state legislative activity. It's always more difficult to get things done in election years. You know, policymakers are a bit more timid, more cautious about what they want to do, but you know, once you get through the big election year, then they tend to be they tend to be a little bit bolder. And I think one of the things that we were anticipating in light of the pandemic is you know state policymakers around the country really beginning to feel the angst of parents of school aged children who were very unhappy about the way their schools were delivering education during the pandemic. And we have examples from states around the country where you know we've got a number of staff based in states around the country you know, who had interactions with policymakers who heretofore were very skeptical of this school choice thing. But then, of course, during the pandemic, you know, their children were were not getting a quality education through their traditional public school district. And a lot of them started thinking, hey, you know, this school choice thing may not be such a bad idea. And as a result, we've seen an explosion of school choice bills around the country. 32 states have now introduced private school choice bills. 52 bills, uh, 36 of which would create new private school choice programs. Most of these are ESAs. I think 21 states have introduced ESA bills, 13 tax credits, 
and I think five states have introduced voucher bills. So there's just been a lot of activity. I would add that most of these states, 26 of the 32 states, either have uh, Republican governors or Republican legislatures. You know, obviously, we're not getting a whole lot of traction in states that are run completely by Democrats. That is a work in progress, as you know. But some purple states then. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we do have a lot of states now where, you you know, you've got a Republican governor, Democrat legislature, Republican legislature, Democrat governor, and you are seeing a little bit of movement in some of these places, which is good news. All right. So it's one thing to introduce bills, right? It's another thing to actually get them enacted. So my sense is there have been already some victories, even though we're relatively early in We're not at the tail end of it yet. It's not the end of June when you sometimes see a bunch of stuff get past it. (laughs) The avalanche at the end. (laughs) Yeah. What have we seen so far? So we've had 10 bills that have made it through at least one chamber of the legislature and four bills have now been signed into law. In Georgia, we successfully expanded and improved the Georgia Special Needs Scholarship. So the expansion will now include students with 504 plans. We anticipate about another 55,000 or so students that could benefit from this. In addition, they also increased the funding weights for charter schools and secured a a million dollars for facilities. In Kentucky, uh, this is an example of of a Democrat governor and a Republican legislature. The Republican legislature overrode the governor's veto to, uh, to pass a new tax credit scholarship. It's actually a tax credit funded ESA, $25 million. And it's a means tested program. So for, for lower income kids will benefit. The way that they did it was um, it would be available to students in counties with a population above, I think, 80 or 90,000. And then, of course, in West Virginia, which has actually, I think, gotten a lot of attention because this is a state where school choice advocates have been working in for several years. It's a very red state, but we, we had a problem with the governor. <laughs> we just could not get him around the corner on this issue, but he is turned out. So he no longer felt beholden uh, to some interest groups that he previously felt beholden to. So West Virginia now has a, has a new ESA program, which is fantastic. Students will receive, I think, about $4,600 each. So four states have now successfully moved bills over the finish line. we got a whole bunch out there that we hope to get over the finish line before sessions end. That is exciting. And of course, you know, on top of all that, a lot of movement on the charter school side, a big decision in Oklahoma recently. We hope to talk on the show soon about funding, trying to bring more equity to charter school funding there. Uh, some more movement in West Virginia on charter schools. I mean, all over the place, things are happening. Yeah, John, I am curious. You, you mentioned that in the deep blue states, you're not seeing a lot of action. That's not too surprising. But do you see some Democratic legislators coming around? I mean, you mentioned this impact of the pandemic on legislators who are parents or hearing from parents. I mean, is that just Republicans or is it also Democrats? No, Mike. One of the things we do at AFC is uh, we invest in elections. We only invest in state legislative elections. And, you know, every year we try to identify districts where there are competitive Democratic primaries, you know, where we can find some Democrats who are at least supportive of charter schools. That is the minimum threshold for our support. And then ultimately, if we get them elected, we try to bring them around the corner so that they support all options. But you know, one of the things that we've noticed this year is, you know, a lot of Democrats that we helped in uh, 2020, it came time to actually cast votes. So they were voting for this stuff. Uh, we think that's great news. Once they do it and they realize they can survive politically, then you tend to see a lot more Democrats come around. 
And one of the things I would, I, I, we always like to point out, when the first Florida uh, private choice program was passed under Jeb Bush, there's only one Democrat that supported it. It was a Democrat who was retiring. But over time, as more and more kids uh, began participating in these programs, more and more Democrats began to support them. So that's, that's one of the things we always try to do. You know, we pass these programs, want to make sure we get kids enrolled. And then ultimately, you begin to see more Democrats come around. So we're bullish on this. Well, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get our Democrat here on the show to come around. But David, you got any thoughts or questions for John? It was interesting to hear that you make the connection between the the pandemic and school choice, because I think Mike and I have been debating this. And I think we were kind of early skeptics that this was going to be a game changer. But the longer it's dragged on, the more we felt like, well, it's at least a pro school choice shock to the system. And I mean, I don't want to call it a silver lining, but that probably is probably the right word for it. I guess I'm just curious, you've mentioned all kinds of different school choice programs, right? And I'm always curious about kind of the evolution of the school choice movement and where it's headed. I'm sure you don't want to pit the different flavors of choice against each other, but I am curious to know how what's resonating now compares to what was resonating five years ago or 10 years ago and how you think the the pandemic has sort of changed that. So David, I think what's resonating now, as opposed to five or 10 years ago, is, as Mike knows, I have been involved in this movement for a long time. A long, long time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was part of the movement when Private School Choice, it was really more of a support group. You know, the only people we talked to were each other. And But this is now mainstream education reform. Policymakers around the country, uh, certainly voters have embraced all options as something that that's necessary. And in the private choice world now, we now have 28 states that have publicly funded private choice programs. There's almost 600,000 kids being educated. We've got a long ways to go before we catch up to the charter folks, about 3.2 million kids in charter schools. So there has been tremendous momentum, particularly, uh, particularly since 2011. And, you know, candidly, uh, much of that had to do with the legislative composition in a lot of these states uh, over the last 10 or 11 years. Private school choice uh, has been largely driven by Republicans. uh, And, you know, each year we try and uh, attract more and more Democrats to this. But I think the, the probably the biggest difference in terms of the type of school choice today, as opposed to five years ago, Uh, has been the emergence of VSAs. These education savings accounts are very, very popular. Our polling has shown that education savings accounts are supported by about 70% of voters. That's great. I mean, because when you explain it to people, they're like, wow, what a great idea. I mean, it's it's a menu of things I could spend this money on. And I think it's very attractive. And I think that's why you see, uh, you know, of the states who have introduced uh, private choice bills this year, you know, 21 of those states have introduced ESAs, very, very popular. You know, tax credit scholarship programs, the, these are programs that, that we, we deployed over the years, you know, to get around uh, state constitutional restrictions on private choice. And they've been very successful over the years. Well, look, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that people like free money, right? <laughs> they like... <laughs> not paying taxes. I mean, this is all makes a ton of sense. And look, and in this moment, the notion of being able to spend money on things that are educational, but not necessarily quote school, right? But that go beyond that could even be enrichment makes a ton of sense and makes a ton of sense to people. So that's exciting. Hey, one last question, John, it's a little bit of a tough one. I can't help but note that we're seeing all this activity 
at a time when suddenly there's no longer a President Trump or a Secretary DeVos. I mean, do you think that that explains part of what's happening? Or do you think they deserve some credit for teeing up uh, some of these successes? Or is there no relationship at all? Well, look, why I, would I you ask that? David, <laughs> because I've been on the record saying that I actually thought that Secretary DeVos, even though, of course, she cares about this issue, she was trying to help. But because she'd become so controversial that maybe she was uh, hurting the cause of school choice by being Secretary of Education, maybe that's unfair, though. Maybe I just was being impatient, and now we're seeing the result of her advocacy. I mean, where where do you come down on this, John? Obviously, as somebody who has worked with and for Secretary DeVos uh, in this organization. (laughs) Well, Mike, I think as you and I have discussed over the years, if you look at the polling over the over the course of the Trump administration, and we we went out and asked that question, as did others. You know, does the fact that Donald Trump supports school choice make you more or less likely to support school choice? The answer was more, or it didn't matter. So the idea that Trump's unpopularity or Betsy DeVos's unpopularity somehow negatively affected the advancement of school choice is, is just not true. Um, and I think. The fact that she elevated this issue over the course of her four years, was willing to talk about it, was willing to take all the grief from the teachers unions and the Democrats for talking about it. You know, I do think that it was helpful. I do think that it created momentum. And I think that that's a good thing. All right. Well, we'll let you have the final word on that and so much else. Thank you so much, John. Again, president of the American Federation for Children. Appreciate you coming on the show and hope we'll have you back sometime soon. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You enjoying this beautiful spring weather? I am. It's very, very nice. Been out mowing the grass. Gotcha. I guess picture that you've got this big old yard that you need a big. Uh, old it's it's an for. acre, which is pretty pretty good, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's enough where it's nice not to have to push the whole thing. Uh, I, I will say, Amber, uh, you know, one of my my new favorite country songs. You know, I listen to country music now that my son Nico is into country music. There's that new song out about something about how she she finds my tractor sexy. Yes, Mike, that's like five, eight years old. What? Are you serious? Is it really? (laughs) Oh, my God. That's terrible. I don't even know how old that is. (laughs) (laughs) He's listening to the classics. Uh, All right. It's new to me. Point taken. All right. Well, uh, what you got for us this week on the research front? (laughs) On the research front, we've got a qualitative case study. It's a deep dive into how online parent networks are used in parental decision-making when they're selecting schools for their kids. It was conducted by the Brookings Institution. The online forum they were looking into was called DC Urban Moms and Dads, short for just DC Urban Moms. According to the report's authors, it cast a light on how continuing school segregation practices are playing out in the nation's capital. That's sort of the framing for this. For those listeners who don't know, housing in D.C. is strongly segregated by race and class, and housing prices in the district are sky high, and affordable housing is in short supply. So all that is important context for the study. D.C. Urban Moms was launched in 2007, contains 55 forums on various subjects, but 11 pertain to education, and they have a total of 3 million messages. The analysis focuses on a particularly active forum called DC Public and Public Charter Schools, includes all posts between 2008 and April 2020, 
total of 15,000 conversations and 400,000 messages were analyzed. The median number of messages per conversation in the forum is 14. Although the messages are anonymous, researchers say that the participants are, quote, highly privileged and that the zip codes most commonly referred to are the three most expensive zip codes in the district, and they make up one-third of all zip codes referenced in the conversations. So if they live there, the participants are substantially wider than the city as a whole. Qualitatively, they also look at other conversations to try to basically get an idea of who these people are. And other conversations refer to pricey cars and other financial investments. Okay. Participants appear to be well-to-do. An analysis of the seven takeaways. Number one, 78% of the conversation threads mention at least one school, and the median mentions in the thread are two schools. 76 schools appear in at least 2% of all conversations and are, quote, the commonly discussed schools. These schools include 12 traditional public elementary schools in the wealthy neighborhoods of wards two and three, four traditional public schools and three charter schools in the Northwest have the highest level of discussion and only contain schools with greater than 15% white students. Low attention or schools that don't get a lot of discussion contain schools with less than 15% white students. Half of the public schools in the district are never mentioned. Number two, they analyze the words used to describe these high attention schools, and they use words like excellent, families, moms, and they also refer to the school facilities and the class size. Low attention schools use words like African-American, failing, football, and renovate. Number three, the high attention schools are Alice Deal, Woodrow Wilson, Janney, Washington Latin, and Basis DC Charter School. Number four, parents typically ask other parents about guidance for which schools are preferable and how to increase one's chances of accessing them. Nearly 50% of the conversations are started in the first four months of the calendar year when parents are choosing schools for the fall. Number five, it's difficult to disentangle geographic segregation from school segregation and many conversations relate to housing and real estate. They also use words like waitlist, lottery, being inbound or not, and as well as trying to clarify what schools are in what feeder patterns. Number six, test scores do not seem to sway decisions. Uh, The parents do uh, basically say this is a two or four or five-star school, but it appears to have no impact on the schools that get more or less attention in the forums. And number seven, their takeaway is, quote, facially neutral policies can be used to concentrate privilege. All right. So what do we think? <laughs> Interesting. Well, well this, Mike, I was my idea. All right. Oh, my idea. All right. Because it's fun to do some navel gazing at times. And this forum is certainly something that I have read at times. And I will say, this was like my primary target audience when I wrote a book uh, way back in 2012 called (laughs) The Diverse Schools Dilemma, which of course was all about this topic. You can tell by the title of that book, you know, my argument was that it's complicated Mm because I think it is complicated, right? I mean, my sense is that the folks writing the study maybe make it sound like it's not complicated. Like these are white affluent parents that are uh, 
contributing to segregation. But look, all parents, uh, white, black, rich, poor, everything in between have, uh, you know, reasonable questions about school quality uh, and reasonable questions about how schools do handle it when you've got kids coming across lines of race and class, especially class, right? I mean, if, if you're considering a neighborhood school that maybe right now is still predominantly low-income kids, and you're uh, somebody, you know, middle class, upper middle class, you've got questions about whether the school's design is going to be targeted to meet your kids' needs or other kids' needs or how they're going to do that all at the same time. And, you know, I argue in the book, it is doable, but it takes really strong leadership and a clear vision. And of course, there's trade-offs. And, and, you know, we should be honest about that. My sense is this study did not get into that kind of nuance. uh, No. Instead, just, just, you know, talked about this, this kind of privilege. I don't know. What else, David? I mean, we've known for a long time that parents pay more attention to the racial makeup of the school than test scores, though, of course, because of the achievement gap, we know that that the racial makeup is a proxy for for test scores and other things as well. Yeah, I think that's right, Mike. And, um, you know, it is complicated, I think. And and it's also not that complicated, right, as sort of the gist of the study points out. So I think there's a couple of things that can be said, Mike. I think, first of all, there are at least two things going on when it comes to segregation, um, or two concerns. Uh, one is the, the basic problem of school match, right? As long as we have an achievement gap, white parents are going to worry uh, that the school will not be rigorous enough, that their kids will be ahead of where the class is, or where much of the class is. And so that's tough to get past, right? Until we close the, the achievement gap, that is going to be a concern. And the fact that many people think integration would help close the achievement gap, which is complicated itself, sort of doesn't negate that reality for the individual white parent. And then I think the second point that's worth making, right, is that at best, right, even if you set that aside, I still think there's a really strong collective action problem, right, which is most people, when they picture a diverse school, they're not picturing their child and maybe one or two other kids who look like their kid and then a vast sea of kids who look different. Um, That's nobody's idea of a diverse school. But in practice, if you're thinking about breaking down segregation, that's that's what it looks like to the first people into the pool, right? And I thought you dealt with that pretty well in your book, Mike. And so, okay, you can imagine a system, and there are systems, right, in Chicago, some other places, where there's been an intentional effort uh, to map out how many spots we're going to have for poor kids, right? And how many spots we're going to have for rich kids in a given school. Uh, And I'm not opposed to that necessarily, but it is a heavy political lift at best. And not everybody's going to like it, you know, even if it happens. And so are we surprised by this? I don't think so. It's more evidence of the internet's sort of capacity to bring things that were once said in private or not put in writing into sort of the bright light of uh, permanent online written conversation uh, that we're all familiar with in Twitter. And I mean, society is wrestling with this. I'm not sure what else to say. In particular in DC, you've got this dynamic. Yeah, I think you see it in other cities where you've got some neighborhoods that have gentrified, or at least let's say they've become more diverse. They used to be entirely African-American and now they're mixed. But the school is still entirely African-American because those white parents or the upper middle class parents haven't yet sent their kids to the neighborhood school. But then you have a dynamic where suddenly if they do and they do it very quickly, the school can flip 
it can go from being almost all black to almost all white, you know? And so as you're saying, David, without having some kind of policies in place, that can happen. The one school that was mentioned here that I think is pretty diverse is Basis DC Charter School, which is this very high performing, rigorous school. They strategically located it in the middle of the city. They've done a lot of work to try to make sure that it is attractive to, to families across lines of race and class. I haven't looked at the latest numbers. I suspect it is whiter than uh, maybe the, the demographics of the city as a whole. But look, most public schools in DC are either almost all white or almost all black. So they have any school that's mixed. Charter schools have this benefit. They can locate strategically uh, and they can use a lottery and they can manage some of these issues. And after a policy that some of us pushed a few years ago at the federal level, you know, they can even have weighted lottery at least by class uh, mm. to try to you know, maintain that socioeconomic diversity. So yay, charter schools is again yeah. my bottom line. <laughs> well, and let me just put in a plug here, Mike. I am of the opinion that the charter ecosystem could use and in fact needs more intentionally diverse schools. I think there's demand out there for it. I think, and I think if you are looking for that right now, it is very hard to find it, right? You know, I think we could do more. I think funders and I think uh, the movement could do more to try to bring that idea to the front and make it at the very least something that parents have as an option. And it's not necessarily going to happen on its own, right, is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't necessarily mean we need heavy-handed regulation, but it is not something that necessarily sprouts without a little bit of cultivation. And I think we could do better with that. Regardless of what your theory of action is, education is very complicated. Segregation is very complicated. There are a lot of reasons to keep an open mind about the benefits of a diverse school. Education is about more than just test scores. We could do more to spread our bets in terms of what the school choice movement is trying Mm -hmm. to accomplish, sort of how we're going about fixing the problems that we're trying to fix. But I don't want to hold individual parents responsible for that, I guess is the other point. Yes, good point. It's a collective action problem. Yes, it does not make sense to sit and judge individuals for the problem. Yes, that's kind of the tone of the report, frankly, so. Okay, yep. All right, well, thank you, Amber, uh, for bringing that to us. That is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.